a hug instead of a handshake, selling beauty in the 21st century, a guide for the distributor sales consultant by Kenneth Vigue and Redavid Salon Products Limited. To Thomas Aramo and Elda Argenti, mentors who saw something in me, said yes to my ideas, and let me fly all those years ago. Introduction If you ask a hairdresser how they got into the industry, you'll often get a smile and they will look into the middle distance and tell you a personal story. They will talk about doing hair with their mom or on their sister. Or maybe they just felt a calling to make people feel beautiful. If you ask those of us who manufacture or distribute, market or sell, we will pause for a moment and ponder. Beauty chose them. We chose beauty. When I graduated high school in 1998, I had no plan, no prospects. My family could not afford to send me to college, and so I found myself running a cash register at a local grocery store. My misery was short-lived as my aunt managed customer service at a well distributor in New England called Visions Beauty Supply that needed someone to help handle the phones. I started at the bottom, working in customer service, and found the entire industry fascinating. In my downtime, I started designing deal sheets and order forms for the DSCs internally, and I was lucky enough to have the owner of the company let me grow and experiment with new skills and knowledge. In the years I spent there, I worked in every facet of the business, from service to sales, marketing and education. During that time, I noticed an obvious problem. Customer service, sales and marketing were often at odds. They were operating independently to the point that conflicts arose and a synchronized strategy could not occur. Communication broke down, programs were not vetted properly, things were missed and things slipped through the cracks. We had been a Wella distributor for quite some time, and back there and back then, New England was the most profitable territory in the United States. We were more than profitable, in fact, and the DSCs were more than comfortable because they represented then the number one professional hair color brand in the world. For the most part, each DSC worked with just enough accounts, simply going in and taking the order, acting as consultants in name alone. When things are good, when money makes itself, we don't have to try very hard and settle into a state of complacency. That's human nature. Without knowing it, we were in a success trap. If you dug back into the depths of the internet or scoured an antique store for a copy of the 1966 Fortune 100 companies, the names on the list would be familiar. However, 66 of them didn't make it out of the 2000s, with only 19 still existing on the list today, and the other 15 still in business but no longer a Fortune 100 company. What happened? The success trap. Kodak, Rubbermaid, Blockbuster, all mega brands that dominated in their day became satisfied with their returns for too long and relied too heavily on their existing product, technology, or knowledge. They were enjoying being in the lead and weren't mindful of the disruption of their industry caused by exterior forces or even a new and nimble rival. On December 31st of last year, the 95th San Silvestre de São Paulo road race was held in Brazil. 
a Uganda teenager and Olympic runner named Yakub Kaplimo lit up a 9.3-mile race. Kaplimo was riding high on a winning streak in races the world over for three years running. As he approached the finish line, inches away from another amazing victory, he put his arms up in celebration. As he did that, Kibawat Kandi, who'd been edging up on his lead, seized the opportunity and put everything he had into one last burst of speed. He beat Kaplimo by just one second. While riding high on success, we are often blind to a disruption at our heels that can topple us. I spent the better part of a decade working at Visions Beauty Supply and loved every minute of it. Not just for us being like family, but because I had fantastic mentors and an owner who was willing to listen and try my new ideas. Realizing that the internet would disrupt business-to-business sales, with the vice president of the company, we started to shift our sales methodology with a new sales structure, a consultative model. Unfortunately, while we were starting to evolve, it wasn't fast enough. In 2008, I learned one of my first big lessons in life. Crisis facilitates change as much as destruction. The internet and its proliferation was changing the landscape of everything. For the first time in history, we were ordering everyday things online. For decades, we struggled to keep salon clients buying professional products in salons and not drugstores. But now they were ordering hair care online. At the same time, multinational conglomerates had noticed the professional beauty industry, a recession-proof niche market category that was a virtual cash cow. A titanic shift in the industry occurred. Consolidation. Overnight, family-owned manufacturers and brands, started by an artist with a vision, were scooped up by these conglomerates. In pursuit for control of margins and their supply chain, they either went direct in market and bought out existing distributor contracts or simply bought out distributors outright. The industry was changing rapidly, and though we had made strides in going from order-taking to true consulting, it wasn't enough or fast enough. The first titanic shift in the industry had occurred. Consolidation. Many distributors didn't stand a chance. Ours did not. Wella, purchased by P&G, bought out our contract and went direct in the territory, and we never quite recovered from that. On the offensive, we brought in alternative lines, but the crisis and hustle was so intense that the day-to-day focus was on survival and retaining our customer base. There wasn't time to complete the shift to a new model. I eventually made the difficult decision to leave the company, which felt like moving away from home. I moved on to work for a skincare manufacturer, consult and coach salons, help a beauty school evolve its teaching culture, and eventually went off on my own as a marketing consultant. For the last 10 years, I've worked with all facets of the professional beauty industry, helping companies large and small tackle their own wicked problems. It was in this role that I was lucky enough to meet Marco and Leonardo Redavid, and I hope one day you get a chance to sit down with both of them, because they are about as real as it gets. We decided to write this book because right now, at this time in history, for the first time, the recession-proof beauty industry was shut down by something it could never plan for. When bombs dropped on Paris during World War II, Gervais Salon was still doing hair. On the battlefields of World War I, a British barber cut the hair of a German on that Christmas that stopped war for a moment. 
but a global pandemic? We could never plan for this. Disruption is constant. So now is the time to realize that as we race for the finish line, there are disruptors just at our heels. Amazon, more consolidation. Professional brands being shuffled around to largely consumer companies. More and more ways for salons to get products and services beyond the traditional business-to-business method. This book is not a hard-line shaming on you if you're a hunter or a farmer, as I think we've had enough of that. When I mentioned in the beginning that sales, marketing, and service are at odds, it's because they've been engineered to conflict with one another by mindset alone. We are trained that it is the job of marketing to dazzle and build awareness and interest. The job of sales to doggedly constantly close by any means necessary. And customer service to serve as nurturers and problem solvers. I can't tell you how often I have heard a customer utter, it's not my job. This mindset couldn't be further from the truth, because all of those things are our job. I believed it 20 years ago, and I still believe it today, that it's not about being a hunter or farmer, or having left-brain, right-brain dominance. Take all those personality quizzes and burn them in a dumpster behind the building. It's not about siloed, disconnected sales, marketing, and service. It's about the era of the true consultant. But before we can go forward, we need to look back to understand how our industry got to where it is today. Pack a bag, because we're headed back to 1905. Chapter 1. 115 Years of Beauty in 10 Pages One of the first things to know about me is that I'm a sucker for history. I can't get enough of it. Because history, much like life, is all about context and lessons learned. One of the most famous aphorisms everyone knows is from Georges-Augustin-Nicolas Ruiz de Santayana y Boras, a Spanish immigrant whose name was perhaps a bit too much for Ellis Island to process, So he grew up in the United States as George Santayana. Chances are you've never heard of him. But in 1905, he published a ponderous five-volume exploration of human progress that made his aphorisms a household phenomenon. In volume two, he explored the idea of progress in society and believed that change, permanent change, is dependent on retention. Change is achieved when experience leads to a maturation of ideas and experiences. He wrote, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The history of the beauty industry is a fascinating thing. If we crack open this pressed powder dusted volume and wipe away some ancient stray hairs, we'd find that the 20th century was the era that both defined it and led to some problems that we're still struggling with today. Ironically enough, the problems began with rapid growth in the United States following World War II. While George Santayana was busy explaining humanity in 1500 pages, the beauty industry was doing pretty good for itself in the first few decades of the 20th century. Florence Nightingale Graham, better known as Elizabeth Arden, opened her first salon in New York City in 1910, and it became fashionable for Victorian-era ladies to indulge in beauty. 
advertisements presenting salons as luxurious retreats with friends began inserting a visit to the salon as an essential and ever-present necessity. Women were emerging from beneath layers of clothing and hats to literally let their hair down. Along with the first wave of women's liberation spurned on by the suffrage movement came short skirts and shorter hairstyles. Beauticians went to work, making two times as much a week in a salon compared to any other industry, staffing 25,000 beauty parlors in the United States by 1925. On October 24, 1929, the Roaring Twenties came to an end during Black Thursday, when the stock market crashed, triggering the Great Depression. It was during this world-shaking event that our problems began. While business after business collapsed and six million Americans found themselves in dire financial straits, there were just two business categories that remained stable and even grew. Hair salons and trash collection. The beauty industry for the first time became labeled as recession-proof. Women would forego other essentials of life to have just enough money for a trip to the salon. Beyond the psychological reasons for getting pampered, what jobs were available would only consider those who interviewed well appearance-wise. It is here that a sense of confidence and complacency began. Mistake number one. Why worry? We are recession-proof. Spurred on by the glittering profit center that was the beauty industry, the first wholesale distributors began opening mail-order business-to-business catalogs to pair these busy beauticians with the newest gadgets, products, and chemical services. Business was good and amazingly easy, as the supply chain was simple, and in a service industry, manufacturers, reps, and the first distributors merely had to show up to win orders from a booming industry. After World War II ended, thousands of soldiers returned home to settle down and start families. For the most part, we spent the next 10 years celebrating. The post-war economic boom gave birth to the middle class, and disposable income flourished. But manufacturers in a patriarchal society had a problem. We needed women to start consuming, shopping, and return to the home. Madison Avenue's madmen went to work using media to give birth to the domestic goddess ideal of a beautified and well-groomed housewife. As ridiculous as this period of history is now, it was jet fuel to the beauty industry, and the salon became firmly cemented in Americana. Here is where the first problem appeared, as the only salon in town now had more business than they knew what to do with. They didn't have enough chairs, much less staff for the demand. Furthermore, manufacturers in the industry as a whole needed to grab on to the booming demand to cash in and grow. Salon owners asked us, how can I meet this demand? The industry replied, no problem. We'll build you plenty of beauty schools to get you staff. The profits are endless. Mistake number two. The craft of hairdressing is good enough. Prior to this period, the American model of cosmetology was based on the British model, also used in Canada, that relied heavily on mentorship. A new beautician in the industry would spend years training under a mentor like Sidney Richet and Mr. Teasy-Weezy himself, Ramon Besson, including pioneers like Vidal Sassoon. But especially during the 1950s, fast consumption was becoming a way of life. So an accelerated model of training evolved that taught the craft of hairdressing alone. 
A conveyor-like belt cranked out stylus quickly. However, in shifting to a rapid training method, concepts of precision artistry, marketing, and business were abandoned. This worked out wonderfully for manufacturers because it meant generations of new hairdressers that could be marketed to and easily programmed to try anything and everything new in an era of rapid technological evolution and discovery. By 1960, there were 1,922 private cosmetology schools, turning out 692,000 beauticians a year. Here is where our second problem began. Because the stylists were taught heavily on the craft of hairdressing alone, they lacked the business know-how to understand the marketing and operations of a salon. So, after 8-10 to years of working behind a chair, these same stylists opened salons of their own, but they had only one piece of the puzzle of success, experience. As people, when we lack knowledge in a particular area, we often overcompensate by relying on the area of knowledge that we do. In this case, stylists knew products in and out, so they could grow and compete simply by being in a great location, having good products on the shelf, and doing good work when it comes to hair. They embraced passive methods of growth at a time when business just walked in off the sidewalk with very little effort. The next decade or two went exceptionally well for salons, distributors, and manufacturers, and the professional beauty industry as we know it was born. Salons were getting busier and busier. Mail order business to business was just too complicated and time delayed to meet the needs of these salon owners. They asked us, I'm busy. Where can I get all the products I need for my business fast locally? We replied, no problem. We'll open distribution centers close by and come to you. In 1964, Sally Beauty Supply opened its first store in New Orleans. The first multi-line distributors and distributor sales consultants headed out into the field to write orders for busy salons. Still, salons' key point of differentiation was products alone, and we met their needs by simply dazzling them with new products and doing the shelf product shuffle. Mistake number three. Differentiation on products alone isn't enough. Time marched on and the 1990s arrived, and with it, a lot of hairspray. Here's where our third issue began. Hair salons are everywhere. The professional beauty industry has exploded, and it's no longer enough of a competitive advantage to have a good location in town. For decades, salons had enjoyed passive marketing methods and the products on the shelf as being enough. But what do you do when salons are everywhere? Worse still, during this period, the consumer goods industry noticed the cash rolling in and started to stock professional beauty brands on the shelves of drugstores and supermarkets. Frustrated salon owners asked us yet again, okay, great, I have competition now a few streets over, and my products can be bought at the grocery store. Now what? We replied, maybe it's time for you to diversify. So once again, salon owners realized something was missing, and once again, we steered them back to products as the solution. Because they always have been the answer, right? So along came a host of new services to shake things up a bit, including salons diversifying and rebranding as day spas and a host of other services. Around this time, they started asking questions. So how do I grow and bring in new business? What are some marketing methods I can use? We responded, it sounds like you need some classes. How about color collections to give you ideas? 
Just as we were settling in, a titanic shift happened in the industry. The shame that happens to every oversaturated market. Consolidation. The new millennium had arrived, and everything was going to change. Mistake number four. We helped make salons a commodity. By August of 2000, more than half of all households in the United States had a computer. Two times what it had been just two years before, when fledgling e-commerce marketplace Amazon had its first massive holiday shopping season. For the first time as consumers and business owners alike, we ventured into the depths of America Online and browsed a worldwide web of products and solutions for beauty. It was here that things started to change for what the role of the DSC was, and indeed all salespeople. Traditionally, the sales representative's responsibility was to inform the customer of new products and persuade them towards a purchase by shaping their perception and presenting its benefits. Now suddenly, customers were having their perceptions shaped by outside sources, such as websites, review sites, and even message boards. One of my great heroes is Terry O'Reilly, the marketer, author, and podcaster, not the hockey player. During summers when I'd visit my grandmother in New Brunswick, Canada, I'd turn on CBC Radio and stumbled on his program one summer. He dubbed this era the Age of Persuasion. It was during this era that our fourth major problem reared its ugly head, commoditization. In 1979, Michael Porter first theorized on the industry life cycle, which has become a metric for CEOs and presidents ever since. It is comprised of four phases that every industry or even a business goes through. Introduction, growth, maturity, and decline. In the early part of the 2000s, the professional beauty industry began to reach the maturity phase, which always begins with a shakeout period at the end of the growth phase. During this volatile period, the major players become obvious, and these players will jockey for domination of the industry through acquisitions. By the time I moved on from my first job at Visions Beauty Supply, 70% of the professional beauty industry was controlled by just seven companies who'd spent the decade acquiring brands to add to their portfolio. Procter & Gamble, L'Oreal, Shiseido, KIO, Estee Lauder, Colomer, and John Paul Mitchell Systems, which didn't so much acquire other companies as it did dominate the market. Many of these businesses with consumer beauty brand holdings saw the potential to diversify those holdings and encompass consumer and professional distribution channels. So Wall Street went to work, shaking things up within the industry. Invariably, consolidations, mergers, and acquisitions can be messy and always, always lead to product changes, formulation delays, or even failures in service as people come and go. Meanwhile, our increasingly less patient salon owner, who all of a sudden was wondering why the brand they had helped grow and relied upon for its consistency became less so. They asked, look, I'm still having problems over here, so a larger company with more resources can help me out, right? The corporations responded, well, we can't tell you how to run your business, but what you really need is a men's line, natural and organic soaps, maybe some Botox, hair oil, or maybe a blowout from Brazil. The salon owner also started asking, why is it that my professional products are showing up everywhere on retail shelves and online? The corporations responded with, keep buying, we'll work on that. Hey, have you heard about our new packaging? The owner, finally waking up, began to ask themselves for the first time, 
are these products really keeping me competitive? Maybe I'll ask my rep for help with my business. Unfortunately, at this point, we end where we began. The consolidation of the industry meant contracts were being bought out as the major players now sought to streamline their distribution model by either directly acquiring or going direct in the marketplace. Family-owned distributors of all sizes simply started going out of business, which meant that generations of personalized face-to-face business and relationships were going by way of the dodo. Salon owners now dealing with much larger companies, many of whom were so focused on their consumer business, struggled even more to get support. Still relying on what they were comfortable with, some salon owners gave up completely and went into private labeling their own product line as a point of differentiation. This brings us back to the present. We are now in the maturity phase of the industry cycle, and we have a big problem. We talked earlier about the success trap, but another problem far more disruptive to companies, products, or even whole categories is the commoditization trap. We are at a saturation point with products and offerings, and it only gets worse. Today, if you're a salon owner looking for a wet line, you would lose your voice before you'd finish naming every possible line to carry. Because we've created a commoditization trap, and we all, manufacturers, distributors, and salon owners alike are trapped in it. Worse still, having worked for multiple manufacturers, you would be shocked at how most formulation goes these days. It doesn't start behind the chair or with a walk in the park as it did with Leonardo Redavid all those years ago. It starts in a boardroom where someone literally hands a few competitive products to their chemist and says, make me something like that. It's a sea of same, which is why we trip over ourselves when someone has an authentic idea and a new innovation. Mistake number five, we waited to the 11th hour to serve the salon owner. Once upon a time, just being the salon in town was good enough to run a sustainable business. But now more than ever, salons were trying to compete on the products, services, and equipment they could offer customers alone. However, they still didn't have any answer to the three most important things to assure a successful business. One, deliver extraordinary guest experiences. Two, have a concrete and healthy business engine. Three, be the exception to the commodity. We, the industry, have continued to tell the same story for over a century. Features and benefits and flashy products and bizarre services are the answer to your woes. Our customers are salon owners who learned and mastered the craft of hair, but lack the fundamentals of business and marketing to assure a successful business. Many of us have been unprepared to meet this modern need, especially now, in uncertain and volatile times for business in general. I'm going to tell you something shocking coming from both a marketer and someone working for a manufacturer. We can't sell you success in the form of a bottle. No one can. The answer to business woes isn't found on the shelf, in the dispensary, on the back bar, or in an aesthetics room. It's also time to stop pretending that it can because we've been leading salon owners astray for far too long. And someone who does that has a particular title and lineage. Peddler.